0: We have been in a series of discussions here on Sundays about how it is hard to believe in a God that is totally of love, totally uh, trustworthy, instinctively, that we don't have to have any question in our mind about going to, that this God might have a split personality, part loving, sure, but also possibly part vindictive, possibly judgmental. There's a lot of reason to be somebody who questions that, who makes who makes you feel like you you might have a God might have a split personality. But what if God is, in fact, all love, all grace? What if we can come to a place where we can instinctively trust God with no anxiety in our mind? This is what we've been wanting to talk about. We we think that everybody, like if, if that were to be true, that people would be like, Yes. Thumbs up to that. We would like that to be true, but we all kind of have this, like, just because of living in America, we are taught to like, be skeptical of that. What's the catch? What's the fine print? If you grew up uh, particularly religious, you might uh, wonder, Hey, what about X, Y, or Z Bible passage? How does that square with this idea that you're talking about God being totally of love? American culture in general, and ironically, American religious culture trains us to be skeptical of a God that is entirely of love. And so this series about responding to a lot of the questions that we knee jerk ask, what if God really is all loving, all grace? Uh, so for the pastors here, for Haley and for Kyle and for myself, we can honestly and genuinely say that we have found satisfying responses to a lot of those hard questions. There are lots of answers out there that you might have been, uh, you might have had thrown at you or sold to you in the past that don't feel satisfying. Maybe something to the effect of like, well, God works in mysterious ways, so just take your medicine and shut up. Uh, that doesn't uh, necessarily make us feel like we're, we're our, our, respond, our, our questions are responded to. And so each week, what we want to do is zoom in on a different hard question. We've actually mined these from our community itself on Easter Sunday. We asked everybody, like, what are the questions you have? And uh, and what our job is to do uh, each Sunday, our goal is to bring three different responses amongst us, the pastors, not the same response. There'll There'll be some overlap to our responses, but we want to bring three different things each week and then kind of. Leave them out for you, not to say this is the right one and this is the wrong one, but for everyone here to just take what they will and leave what they will to form better an understanding of God that makes sense to you, that you can feel is entirely trustworthy and you don't have that like looking over your shoulder feeling with God. We have actually found there are lots of satisfying ways that are much better than God works in mysterious ways to respond to these questions. Now, we had planned uh, previously, if you were with us last week to discuss how do we reconcile the uh, often violent portrayal of God in the Old Testament with the God that we have in the New Testament. Uh, And we're actually going to save that conversation for another time today. Instead, we're going to zoom in on a different question. How can judgment be good news? And the reason is that this feels more in line with our desire to have a space today that continues as we go forward to allow us to respond appropriately as a community to the police violence that we all witnessed this week. We think this question, how can judgment be good news is an important one and connected to this because for black and brown Americans judgments of authorities Judgments that come from people on high, God, any sort of authority figure, they too often lead to harm. They too often lead to mistrust, to violence, even death, as we saw this week. So is God, the supposed ultimate authority, any different? On the surface, the God of the Bible can seem just as violently authoritative as the worst of us. What if God is actually the opposite though? That's something that we wanna lean to. Or there's the fact that our culture in general is just obsessed with determining guilt versus innocence. And so judgment becomes a weapon that we just fight each other with. You're guilty and I'm innocent and here is my weapon of judgment. And isn't a super common conception of God in America that like God is super judgmental because Christians are super judgmental? Isn't isn't that what we kind of look and see when we look around us? On the surface, the God of the Bible can seem just as judgmental as the worst of us but what if God is actually the opposite? We think God is actually the opposite. I am going to, i don't want to bury the lead here. Um, so we are going to be uh, talking from that perspective. Um, we think the judgment of God is nothing like law and order, the American politics talking point, which is a code for racism and in our policing and criminal justice systems. We think judgment of God couldn't be further from the judgmentalism that we so often experience in very American Christian settings. So to talk about our understanding of God's judgment, something different, that is good news. Uh, I wanna welcome our pastoral staff. Uh, That is Kyle Hanawalt and Haley Larson. However, unfortunately, Haley Larson, our pastoral intern, is not feeling well this morning. So we are going to be at uh, not full strength this morning. We, we hope to, to show up as best we can and we hope to make it up to everybody and uh, in, in by leaving a little bit of extra space for maybe some Q&A. And so uh, it, for that, we're gonna need uh, Abby Dye, our moderator, who's gonna come in. Abby, it, hello, Abby. We just wanna say hi to you, just so we can see your face. We know we're interacting with. Hi. Hey, Abby. That is you, yes. And so uh, Abby is going to be hanging out in our chat, as we mentioned before, and we want to hear uh, what sort of uh, questions or comments that you have as we go along as we're offering two today rather than three distinct responses to this question. How can judgment be good news? We want to keep this conversation going. We're going to kind of present some things and then ask some questions. We'll ask Abby to kind of ask the questions that she has, and she would love to rope in anything that you are bringing in uh, today as well. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Kyle with our first uh, response to this question. How can judgment be good news?
1: Thank you, Vince. You know, I have Paley's notes on the shared document and I am a little tempted just to take her talking points and not say what I was going to say because, but hopefully we can still touch on those that's probably is there some kind of plagiarism involved in that I'm not sure. But. When I'm sitting here in this week <clears throat> and I'm thinking about the, the way that judgment has evolved both in the way that we think about God culturally and the way that our criminal justice system has evolved, to me, uh, one of the really helpful places to engage this is to understand the cultural context we live in in the US. So we live in perhaps the most guilt-innocent focused culture that has ever existed. Uh, There's lots of cultural paradigms that help describe how cultures interact. And one of those paradigms is a guilt innocence versus honor and shame paradigm. You know, guilt innocence cultures, which is most Western societies, America being kind of the the ultimate version of this, is about uh, people who break laws and are guilty or those who seek forgiveness to rectify a wrong. It's some sense of innocence being about one's merit and purity in some objective sense. You haven't violated these laws and rules, therefore you are innocent, or you have some guilt which disqualifies and taints you in some objective way. On the other side of the spectrum, the cultural spectrum, which we see more commonly in, for example, like Southeast Asia, much of the Middle East, and most poignantly for us, the world that Jesus lived in, was an honor shame culture, a culture that was not so much trying to figure out where you stood on an objective scale, but it's all about where you stand in a relational scale. Shame honor cultures are a collectivist culture where you are, it's about whether you are honored and accepted relationally within the group, or you have dishonored and moved outside the acceptance of that group. So this is helpful for me for two reasons. One, It helps me understand a little bit how we get to where we are today with mass incarceration, violence, and over-policing. When you have a society that is built and focused and hyper-attentive to who is innocent and who is guilty and is constantly trying to figure out on some objective scale, have you broken X amount of rules which therefore puts you in need of punishment? and you layer those rules being created by those in power, you see a furthering and a creation of white supremacy. How do we get to a place where we are here today? To me, part of that is a culture that is focused on guilt innocence as a basic part of our society and have that laid on to white supremacy, which is the power base of our society. It's helpful for me to acknowledge that, A, to realize that sometimes the arguments and the fights and the ways that we push back against the brokenness of the world is still coming from a certain lens. We're trying to argue and defend, was that person innocent? Was they guilty? Was there justification? Was there not justification? That is such a guilt innocence lens that I am taking to these things. And for me, it's helpful to step back and ask questions about honor and shame. Which I think gets us to very different conclusions, which is also in part why I think societies that are guilt innocence tend to have far less of a robust policing system. The second thing that I think about when I approach this is just how we relate to God. I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, I could just hear soaked into that picture of innocence and guilt the way that I grew up understanding my relationship to God. It is all about me as the one who is guilty. And God's judgment on me is the problem that I'm trying to solve. It is my guilt that is the problem. And so the role of the cross is taking care of that punishment and buying my innocence, buying my freedom from the rightful punishment I deserve. But when I think about this and realize that that was not the cultural context of Jesus, Jesus did not live in a guilt innocence culture. The primary problem, the primary challenge in his world was not guilt, it was shame. And I think about the way this changes the way that I interact with passages that speak of judgment or salvation. It shifts the question from how God through Jesus is addressing the problem of my guilt to how God through Jesus is addressing my issue of shame. And by shame, I don't just mean our own personal emotion of shame. Like because we're not a guilt, because we are a guilt innocence culture, shame has life here, but shame is still a deeply individual thing. I feel shame for something. But in an honor shame culture, honor is to have acceptance in relationship. And shame is to have rejection in relationship. It isn't about some objective status you live in society. It is about where you stand in relation. And for me, that is when judgment begins to feel like very good news to me. These conversations about salvation move away from me trying to figure out what rules I have violated and how I make up for them. And rather becomes about a God bringing me into closeness and into relationship and addressing the brokenness and pieces of me that would keep me separate from him and separate from acceptance. Because again, it isn't just acceptance in a community in the way that we think about it. It's acceptance in community as the basis for my value and identity and an honor-shame culture. And so when I wrestle with these things, that is the first point that I think of that both helps me realize how we have gotten to where we are today as a society, as well as thinking about how these passages and approaches to how Jesus talks to us really takes a different lens when I realize that it is not speaking in that
0: culture. So that really reminds me, Kyle, of the uh, the reading of um, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well that Haley took us to last week. She, uh, she helped us uh, to see this passage that is usually, uh, for most people's experience, um, the, the uh, Samaritan woman is meeting with Jesus and there's a lot of like examples in this passage of Jesus uh, blowing past cultural norms, which is quite powerful. Uh, but, the, but even when we see that, uh, the passage is still often delivered in terms of like, here is a promiscuous, sinful woman that Jesus nonetheless shows love to. And what Haley took us to was like, here is a woman who actually, we don't have any clear indication that she was in any way particularly sinful or promiscuous, but she just has a lot in life that is challenging and that could have something to do with things that are going on with her it could have something to do things that have nothing to do with her in ways that she's victimized and we saw this passage as seeing like oh my gosh like we see jesus naming somebody's pain not trying to help somebody manage their sin that feels connected to a little bit of what you're saying and 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 your argument is that is that that's because you know, for someone like this Samaritan woman. And so therefore, when we think about what Jesus might do for us, the issue was not, I'm so, I feel so, um, I feel so ashamed of my guilt about the things I'm not doing right. Her issue is she, she may not be accepted. She may not have belonging in the world around her. Tease that out just a bit more.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that when, what you're talking about there is so in a guilt, innocence culture, we're, we're hyper-concerned with um, your agency. Like, is it your fault like okay. you are innocent, and so a lot of the time we talk about how well uh, that per- well, you're not guilty because you didn't intend for that to happen. It's very much focused on what your intention was. Honor shame culture kind of could care less what your intention was. It is all, about <laughs> and often you are in a position of shame or rejection for no fault of your own. That you are somebody in this culture, we speak of the Samaritan woman, it has to do with your marital status, it has to do with uh, the cultural position it is, it has to do with living in a society as a cultural outsider, how you were born, your ethnicity, your race, religion, all of those are things. It's not just oh, I did something that that brought my rejection. People are experiencing shame for all sorts of things in a a society like that, that aren't about personal agency. And so when Jesus is addressing the Samaritan woman, or what I would say even in our own lives is addressing our core problem, it isn't about making amends for the things that we did wrong. It is about restoring us to a place of value and acceptance in the ways that value and honor are stolen from us. And so I would argue, even in this last week, when I'm so pained by stupid conversations about whether whether it was justified, what's justified, what's a reasonable, in an honor chain culture, it would just be a shame on our whole country that we have as many people incarcerated as we do. It is a shame on our whole country that we have these many, this many police killings. It's not about who's guilty and innocence. It, it is about the the way, the world that
0: we live in
1: that brings shame on us collectively as well as individually.
0: Wow, that is a different and powerful perspective. That I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And and so if we see uh, God as judge coming in to, you know, like the judge who's like writing the wrongs and making sure that people are, are, you know, are stood up for all of those, like you, you come to me and you don't know how to handle the conflict. I'm going to write things. I mean, if, if that's the motive behind, that makes a lot of sense. That, that, I, I totally see why this makes judgment good news. That's, that's good.
1: I, yeah, I appreciate that. I think it's, uh, I think it's important too, because where, where where is the judgment of those? So where is the place where Jesus steps in and is actually speaking condemnation? It's those who are perpetuating dishonor of other people. It is, if you are bringing shame through the lack of honor of others, like that is where Jesus's judgment would be harsh. That's why Jesus's judgment was harsh to the Pharisees and the powerful in his day, and was not harsh towards those that were struggling in a guilt, innocent sense with sin. That was there was no there was not a judgment of of shame. Uh, it was a of harshness to them. That was a rather perfectly reserved for those with power who were perpetuating a climate of dishonoring and shaming others.
0: and i I really also see the connection between a way that we have. Uh, often um, the, the sort of prophets of our age uh, will encourage us to move away from uh, conversations around whether somebody is or is not racist and rather talk about racism as something around all of us that we all participate in. You're, you're just kind of thing of like, if we saw this from perspective if we saw what's happening right now from the perspective jesus might see us is this is a shame on our entire country it's a shame on our entire people that uh we need to be freed from we need to be saved from and and those who are judges will 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 free us from that that will be the the process of moving forward will be freed from that 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 shame upon all of us we need we need to move away from that so that's really clarifying
1: yeah and just i mean Honor-shame cultures have a lot of problems to it too. So it's not saying we now need to become an honor-shame culture. It's just helping us understand that's the world Jesus lived in. And if we don't recognize what, it, what things meant there, we're just gonna read our lens of guilt, innocence into everything. And that's not gonna, and that's where we're gonna miss things and begin to see, I think, and create a little bit of the lens of the way that we default towards as Americans when we think about um, guilt and innocence and the role of God.
0: Super helpful. Awesome. Um, well, we'll we'll give another reminder, just like it, Kyle's kind of dropping something that is similar to the way uh, that we, a place that we got to last week, as we talked about passages that might be familiar or themes that might be familiar to you if you've been in church settings before, but kind of presenting something that's like, Maybe all of those have to be read in a different way than you've ever been taught to read them. And so being in that place, if you have questions, if you have comments that you want to make, feel free to throw them in the chat. We will uh, rope Abby in before we're done here and uh, and hear from uh, what you guys are asking as we as we respond.
1: I'd also be interested to hear from folks if there's any other ways that you if you see our hyper, focus on guilt-innocence in this culture, ways that that informs and colors the way that we interact as a society that might be helpful mm. just to name. hey, being a guilt-innocent society finds life here and maybe acknowledging that can lead towards freedom. So I'm curious if anybody else sees any other ways that us being a guilt-innocent society plays out. Mm.
0: Mm. Very good, very good. Uh, so uh, for my uh, response here, Um, I'm going to draw from uh, liberation theology, something that we talked a good deal about uh, in in the last year. Uh, We did an entire uh, series, the God of the Oppressed series uh, last summer, where we leaned into different examples of liberation theologies because they come from lots of different traditions. I'm going to specifically draw from a, a Black American liberation theologian named Dr. James Cone. Uh, so for for this perspective, what we have to do is we we're we're talking about judge like that role that we we think of something in America when we hear the word judge, we think of like order in the court, right? You know that that's what we imagine when we think of judge. And uh, the argument here basically is gonna is gonna jump off of the idea that. That's not what would come to people's mind and any of the various timelines that are represented in the scriptures, not the Old Testament Israelites, not the time of Jesus, not the time of Paul. It would be a very different image. Uh, What a good judge is um, throughout the scriptures is not one who determines guilt versus innocence. So I'm going to kind of overlap with you there, Kyle. Uh, What is a good judge is somebody who stands for justice, who stands for the needy, who stands for the oppressed. That's like synonymous with good judge. It's not like, oh, yes, um, I suppose a good judge would also do those things. It's like they're inseparable. A good judge stands for justice. That's what it means. Uh, Judge and justice, you'll see, have similar roots, right, linguistically. So uh, in modern day America, we like to talk about a key qualification for a good judge being impartial. What's interesting here is that that that's not, that's not here. A good judge in, in, in the Bible is not impartial. A good judge in the Bible is partial, partial toward the poor, partial toward the oppressed, partial toward the needy. Um, And that I think that's really interesting, right? Like that might feel almost like unsettling. Like uh, it, no, you're supposed to be impartial. You're supposed to be objective, right? There, there again, words that Kyle was talking about. Um, So Psalm 72 is a great example. I pulled a few selections that I'm going to read to you all from Psalm 72, which kind of captures this like, Judge, a good judge and justice is synonymous in the uh, in the world of the Bible. Um, So uh, Psalm 72. May the king judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Why? For he will deliver the needy who cry out. So I I like that, this one. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Not because he's like, glorious or particularly different or important, it's because he will deliver the needy. That's why others should bow down to to this king. Uh, The afflicted who have no one to help, he, he will deliver them. He will take pity on the weak and the needy, save the needy from death, rescue them from the oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Then all nations will be blessed through this king, and they will call this king blessed. So there we go. That I think that's just a a perfect capturing of like there. There's there's no difference when you're talking about a judge, you're talking about somebody who stands up for the poor or the needy or the unjustly treated. Uh, so what that means is that some of the some of the passages that we might have uh, encountered before in popular American culture or if we grew up going to church. Uh, that, ha- that carry like really strong language about judgment, th- it colors them extremely different. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets who talk about the great and terrible day of the Lord, great and terrible uh, are the the adjectives that we get. Uh, you know, judgment was often conceived in this time, actually even in the times of Jesus and Paul, as like the end of the world is going to come at any moment. People believed that. People believe that I, I, it's, you know, like we don't believe that today. We We kind of believe that we'll be around we we believe we'll be around too long because we don't take our climate seriously, right? But uh but in, in that day people believed that the world was gonna end tomorrow. And so uh, they talked about the great and terrible day of the Lord. That was the idea of judgment. And we read those passages and they might seem scary. They might seem like intense but if we're not talking about judges who come on that great and terrible day and say you're guilty and you're innocent, we're instead talking about a judge who's going to say you have been victimized and I'm going to to like like make wrongs right. That's a very different feeling, right? And maybe the some of that ju- that intense language feels justified. Or in Jesus's parables, uh there's there's one like um Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, uh, you know, on this side is the sheep and on this side are the goats. And there's like this very like intense language of like what will happen. And, uh, or there's others that are Jesus separating like the wheat, uh, from the chaff, which has to be thrown out and burned in the fire. And if that is all about, uh, guilt versus innocence, we are rightfully feeling extremely uncomfortable about the judgment of God. But if that's about justice for the hurt justice, for the ill treated we have a very different feeling. Uh, the book of Revelation is like entirely filled with the imagery about the, you know, the, 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 the idea that like, God will come in a final way and we will not be left hanging. And if that's about, you know, because some people are going to heaven and some people are going to hell, obviously we have strong feelings. But if that is about, there is injustice in the world and much of it has gone unacknowledged, God is coming to acknowledge it. We have a very different feeling. All of these judgments are about like, they're not about separating guilty and innocent. They're about separating victims and perpetrators, right? When you separate victims and perpetrators that protects the victims, that keeps them from getting hurt again. And when, you, uh, when, you, when, when we read about you know in, in Revelation, God wiping every tear from every eye, restoring and healing and redeeming all suffering. Well, now that makes sense. That makes sense if this is what judgment is. Um, one last thing I'll say, and then Kyle and Abby, I'll be curious what kind of questions there. Um, an important part of this liberation theology, this, this piece that I'm, I'm borrowing from Dr. Cohn, uh, and, and the way that it talks about judgment or salvation, an important part of this is a critique of the way judgment and salvation are often talked about in, uh, by white theologians. Uh, And so when white theologians in general, most of the theology that we've probably heard talked about in, I don't know, uh, churches or schools or popular American culture, obviously that's going to be uh, heavily weighted by white men because of power structures in our world what ju- when judgment is talked about in those settings it's often very abstract judgment is not something we can touch that's what i mean by abstract it's not something we can we can feel or or look around and see it is our eternal bank account with god that's what judgment is and so we either you know withdraw from it when we sin or we deposit into when we do good deeds that's how justice I mean, excuse me, that's how judgment and salvation are talked about often by white theologians. Dr. Cohen's critique is, is that uh, for for a liberation theology, for somebody like a black man in America, like Dr. Cohen, and it, what he wants to talk about is embodied judgment and salvation, not abstract. So embodied means I can see it. It has a body. I can touch it. It, it is around me. And so the idea here is Is somebody actually experiencing freedom or is somebody not experiencing freedom? Is somebody experiencing oppression or not experiencing oppression? I can see that if I look around. We're not just talking about big abstract things about whether or not your your eternal bank account is, is, uh, is squared. We're talking about your actual lived experience of life. That's embodied judgment and salvation, not abstract judgment and salvation so that that's just one last thing that again that helps me to understand of like yes on those terms i'm not actually afraid of judgment and and i see that yes there are plenty of authorities that do exercise judgment in really abusive ways but the god that we're talking about the good judge that that makes sense to me
1: i really like that i i think I mean, in many ways, that's like the whole book of Judges is trying to tell us about trying to picture of the the, the good judges versus the bad judges are, who are they standing for? Um, and I just think that the, this interplay of um, the way that power and privilege lead to God being more distant and removed, and suffering and struggle lead to God feeling closer, I think is also really important and played out in the way we think about judgment. Um, there's a reason why I think amongst more affluent um, evangelical churches, this focus on the afterlife gets such a big play. It's because uh, this idea of like, what do I need saving from feels far more abstract to my daily life because I'm already sitting in privilege and power. Whereas the idea of throughout most of the New Testament, as well as I think in many places in our world that are much more familiar with marginalization, what am I needing saving from is a much more Uh, in this minute and moment thing, requiring God to actually be closer and not just removed and like, you know, there's certainly, I think, a sense of a hope, a necessary hope in a future justice for people experiencing marginalization, but there becomes a much more felt need for that opposed to this kind of abstract, where do I fall in the guilt, innocence categories of of, on what side of the spectrum. Mm
0: Hmm. Uh, Abby, if we can uh, rope you in and ask if there's anything that you're scraping from the comments or any question that's a, that's co- uh, occurring to you as we're talking about this.
1: Um, yeah, well, I have some questions, but I also see that um, Ben asked, um, what about the parable of the sheep and the goats? And just saying, like, isn't that about what individuals did? <laughs> and I think you sort of talked a little bit, but... Well, I think in reference to like the honor, shame, guilt, innocence concept, uh, in honor, shame culture there, you can still like, you, it's not that there is no individual action and, and reality of it. So the, the story of the sheep of the goats, of the parable is essentially separating them out and one finding salvation and the other finding judgment and and the, the precipice of who, who is what is the questions of like, did, when when people were sick, did you clothe them? uh You know, when you see the hungry, did you feed them? When you see the stranger, did you take them in um, and saying like that was me when you rejected those people you also rejected me Um, and I think that it's the the piece for me about thinking about things through an honor shame lens is it's not that we remove any individual agency from anything we do and everything is about a societal uh, structure. It's more just recognizing that as an American, I'm always gonna be seeing the individual uh, action and the honor shame culture just helps me reframe uh, maybe some things that I'm missing. And I would say this as well is is in many ways what Jesus is st- setting a stake on of like, where is acceptance in relationship to honor people? It is through the uh, the care for the marginalized. And so what brings shame on you? Who are the goats? The, those are those that have rejected those in need. Um, that's just my, my thought.
0: Yeah, I like that, Kyle. And I think the other thing this makes me think about is um, something that we, that came up last week and um, we were talking again about the cross and this idea that uh, we discussed on, on Easter uh, about uh, the cross not being about uh, a violent God, but being about humanity, which is often violent. And uh, I think, again, I'm struck by um, when we discuss judgment on these terms, similar to the way when we discuss the cross on the terms that we have visited in the last two weeks, what we see is not a removal of accountability for humans who persist in Uh, cruel behavior or who persist in self-centered behavior or who persist in ethnocentric behavior. We don't see a lack of accountability for that. When we remove the element of the judgmental vindictive God, we actually see just as much accountability for those things, but God's role in that God's motivating force in that is extremely different. This, this God that we're painting a picture of is one who is an, an incredible benefit and help to any person who humbly looks at themselves and says, I want to be a part of solutions and not the problem in the world. This God would never treat with cruelty or with distance or with a like, well, let me take a look at your bank account. I'm not sure I can talk to you yet because look, you haven't balanced this budget. This God would never treat anyone who comes with an honest and transparent humility the way that we tend to believe that God might treat us if we're not minding our P's and Q's. However, if we are talking about legitimate injustice, legitimate cruelty, legitimate self-centered behavior and ethnocentric behavior to the point of violence, to the point of exclusion of somebody from community, then that God is going to be seriously against that and seriously hold uh, accountable those realities. And then we add to that this layer that Kyle is talking about where it's not so simple. There's not just the people who who will be held accountable and the people who won't be held accountable, but there's this layer of the fact that, oh my gosh, these are things that we all kind of participate in. Well, then humility does become something that we don't just one time say yes to. Humility becomes something we have to daily say yes to. Today, I want to say yes to that. Tomorrow, I want to say yes to that. What does that mean for, for me to be a part of what God is doing in the world as the good judge, honoring victims, t- calling accountable uh, perpetrators? What does it mean for me to be a part of that today? God, what does it mean for me to be a part of that today? Each morning, I ask the same thing. Each moment, I ask the same thing. I, that, that seems to make sense of this in a way where I don't think we lose any of the important bite that needs to be there for a God who truly stands up for justice. But I do think we remove the, just the, the silliness of a God who is looking down the rim of their glasses at every human being who actually transparently, honestly is coming, trying to be a part of the solution. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Well that's good. We are uh coming up uh to uh 11:12. So I think we have time for like one more comment or question Abby. Anything else that you would bring in uh in this space before we uh before we uh, close up?
1: Um uh, well Erica just posted something right as you said that. So I'm going oh, for- oh, in at the side. buzzer. <laughs> thanks Erica. Um so apologies I'm just going to just going to read it. Um So she says, I feel like the biblical teachings acknowledge that there isn't such a thing as impartiality and that everyone has biases. And so when we buy into this idea of impartiality, it's an extension of enforcing the power structure in place. So believing in a just God means acknowledging that the power structure that favors the oppressor um, and understanding then that God aligns themselves with the oppressed.
0: I I love that. I think that is so beautifully said. Uh, Erica, thank you. Uh, You're awesome. Uh, I know that to be true. Uh, (laughs) But yes, I I think that that is a really, really important part about, uh, at least from the perspective that I suggested, maybe the most like unsettling part of that, the riskiest part of that is to believe in this idea of like, well, maybe impartiality isn't the end all be all maybe being partial toward victims, toward people who are, have their backs against the wall in society or who are, who are victims in any given interpersonal situation, maybe being partial toward that is actually really important for justice, even though we're, we're just convinced that impartiality is the most important thing. Kyle, I don't know if that is making you think about anything. Just like we, we are obsessed with impartiality. We really, maybe, it's, maybe I have a problem with that because I don't think we can actually be it.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a American creation, this idea of impartiality created mostly by like America. It's this idea that we we live in a meritocracy and that like everyone has equal opportunity to get where we're at. And, you know, this idea that everybody's in their, like, I just don't think objectivity actually exists. And I think we don't actually believe it either. There's a reason why we get angry who, depending on like what president. Put to the Supreme Court. Nobody actually believes that the judges are impartial. Nobody like that's not. A, <laughs> <laughs> You're right. The, the way it's always talked about. Yes. Like anybody that's spent three minutes looking at our justice system knows that there's nothing impartial about it. But it is a thing that we begin to when we when we don't acknowledge that and we sit there and we try to mm. pretend like it is. What what impartiality means is what is going to maintain whatever the status quo is. Impartiality means we're not going to be pushing things too much in either direction. What is what is going to be the normative thing that maintains what we're doing? And I think the truth is, nothing about the Bible is speaking from impartiality. I mean, to a little bit foreshadow our next conversation. I mean, the whole Testament is partial to the nation state of Israel as a little geopolitical structure and system. The New Testament, not. That's not their primary concern. New Testament's concern is not partiality towards the nation state of Israel. Uh, the I would argue that actually much of the New Testament is partiality towards those who experience marginalization and rejection. Um, and I just think that that's incredibly important to, to realize yeah. that we we have to realize that there is always going to be a bias towards power, always going to be a bias towards the status quo, and so therefore we have to own that. Or else, impartiality—a fake impartiality—is just going to be perpetuating what is already true.
0: So good, and I'm seeing an awesome question in the chat right here that I'm going to like. I'm going to I'm going to put a bookmark in uh, about uh, a, the Moses story for, uh, for example, of Pharaoh uh, con, uh, killing uh, born, uh, d- uh, firstborn children, which is uh, we're evoking that in the in uh, the song we sang this morning of uh, call and response, um, and then how do we reconcile that with like the one of the plagues that god supposedly sends down uh being the killing of firstborn of egyptian sons Ooh, very good question that is so important that it really gets to the heart of what we want to discuss next week uh with uh, how do we reconcile portrayals of god in the old testament with the god of love that we are talking about here at our uh church and we want to continue to talk about so um bookmarked. We uh, we look forward to talking more and addressing that. Uh, for right now, if I can ask Kyle to pray for us as we close up this week's discussion.
1: Jesus, we just acknowledge uh, the emotions and the different places that we are all at coming into this space. Our desire is to find you, God, in a way that is actually meeting the longings of our hearts, actually bringing healing and restoration and hope. And I just acknowledge all of the questions and the challenges and the, the things that I have learned and the cultural lenses I bring to the table that sometimes makes it hard to find you as good in what I need right now. And I just pray that today and this week, as we grieve and mourn, as we look for hope and we look for healing, we would be able to believe that you are a good God with no exception. And that you are here to grieve and mourn and heal and lead us. And that you would help us break free of lies break
0: free
1: of root in us long ago to put seeds of doubt that you are good or you care for us or that you really are pushing and fighting for anything that looks like real justice in this world. I choose in this moment to say you are and ask for your help to see it and your resources to keep pursuing it.